Hello and welcome to the Pensacola People's Podcast, where we interview interesting people in our area. Hello and welcome to the Pensacola People's Podcast. I'm Simone Hatler, and I'm joined by Violet Rosenthal and Maria Safa Bailey. It is truly our honor to interview civil rights attorney and former legal director of the Southern Poverty Law Center, Richard Cohen. Welcome, Mr. Cohen. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I was born a long time ago, 1954. Went to public schools, um, then went to college in New York City at Columbia University, then back to Virginia where I was an in-state resident and went to the University of Virginia School of Law. After that, I practiced law in Washington, D.C. for about seven years. Very interesting cases. Uh, but decided to follow my heart and moved to Montgomery, Alabama to work at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a civil rights organization. That's amazing. So, um, is it true that you talked to your parents into letting you leave your private school to attend a public school? If, ha- if so, how old were you and why did you want to attend public school? You know, crosstown busing came to <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. Uh, as it had to many uh, southern southern cities. And I just didn't feel good about the idea of going to private school. I thought it was important to try to support the schools. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just told my parents that I wasn't going to do it. And, you know, um, and they let me. And so I ended up going to public schools. Sometimes I, I thought about it afterwards. I said, well, was it a matter of principle? Was I just, or was I just belligerent? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know which. My mother thinks I was belligerent. I think it was a matter of principle. Yeah. Oh, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? Well, I probably in my junior year of high school. I had a wonderful, wonderful teacher. His name was Mr. Cooley, and uh, he was actually in law school at the time and teaching history and civics in my high school. And he made me read Supreme Court cases, like because he wanted wanted to challenge me, and so I think I got the bug then. And also, you know, when I grew up, uh, the civil rights movement was uh, in full force. I remember when Dr. King was killed. So for me, I, I was someone who grew up with that, mm-hmm. and also the kind of the protest era of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think protest and civil rights were in the air, and that's where I went. So was there like a specific incident that pushed you into civil rights law? Oh, I suppose what was happening in Richmond, Virginia, and mm-hmm. I saw a lot of people leaving the public school system. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call them bigots or anything like that, but they just had the perception that with uh, crosstown busing, the schools would get worse. And I, I just thought that was so wrong. Uh, I think my parents weren't, they weren't activists, but they were, they were liberal-minded people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think those early things. And one other thing I would say, <clears throat> um, the first time, I don't know if most of you have watched a political convention before, the first mm-hmm. political convention I watched was in 1968. I was only 13. And uh, Dr. King had been killed before the convention. Mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy had been killed. And so there was a lot of turmoil. And there was one person at the convention who inspired me. His name was Julian Bond. 
a great civil rights leader. Mm -hmm. And he became a friend of mine in later years. And in fact, he was the first president of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So, you know, I followed years later uh, mm -hmm. in his giant footsteps. So, you know, I was yeah. lucky back then. Yeah. So can you tell us a little about the case of the Macedonia Baptist Church arson? Yeah, that was a very interesting case in, 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 in South Carolina. There was a rash of the burnings of black churches around that time. And they're really going around in different parts of the South. <clears throat> Most of the time, it's only maybe you catch the kids or the people who you know, caught the fire, caught, they put the fire, uh, started the fire. But we had a technique where we wanted to go after the leaders of the organizations that inspired the young people to commit these crimes. And so we sued the kids who, who committed the arson, but we also sued the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan group that they were members of. Mm -hmm. And it was a very historic trial. Um, it was in a, in a courtroom or in a, a, a county that had been one of the lead counties in Brown v. Board, the giant school desegregation case. In any event, in the end, the jury rewarded us with like a $37 million verdict. Now, the people we sued didn't have $37 million. Mm -hmm. They didn't have much. Yeah. But it's a warning to others. It says, if you push people to commit illegal acts, mm -hmm. we'll come after you and you'll have to pay the price and you won't be able to hide the fact that you were involved. Yeah. Your entire career has involved fight fighting white supremacist groups. Have you been threatened by any of the organizations you sued? If so, how do you handle it? You know, threats uh, were, were part of the job. I mean, you, it, it would happen. People came, people came to town uh, to blow up a building. Someone came to town one time, uh, you know, with plans to shoot me and I had to move out of my house with my family, you know, for like a week. But we had a lot of security. I had security at home, and uh, and after a while, you and you don't think about it, right? It's just part of life, and uh, I don't think we ever had anyone quit because of uh, fears of security. And probably over time, mm -hmm. about thirty people went to jail in connection with plots to harm people at the office or blow the building up. Mm -hmm. So we were lucky that they were caught. That's really scary. So can you tell us a little bit about the United States v. Paradise and what was the case about and how did you feel about trying a case before the Supreme Court? You know, that was, uh, that was quite an interesting case. It was a case against the Alabama State Troopers. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone knows that Alabama you know, really resisted uh, civil rights, really sure. resisted desegregation. And the Alabama troopers, when we originally sued them, were an all-white force. They had never, mm -hmm. you know, they if you were black, they would just throw your application in the trash can. I mean, that was it. Eventually, we made progress. But we were having a tough time getting people to, uh, getting the troopers to fairly consider people for promotions. So that's really the issue that went up to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Arguing a case in the Supreme Court is, you know, I guess every lawyer's dream, and it was very, very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, I argued the case against the Solicitor General of the United States. The Solicitor mm -hmm. General is the lead lawyer 
for the United States in the Supreme Court. And they were actually opposed to us by that point. They, uh, they had switched sides and were on the side of the troopers. It was a complicated issue involving affirmative action. But, you know, I got to argue the case. I guess I was, you know, 31 years old. I had never argued. I had done a lot of work in trial courts, but I had never argued a case on appeal. And uh, so it was a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So what was the most disturbing case you've encountered during your career? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> you know, so many. I guess the most... One time I represented a family in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, the father, the husband, had been killed in a jail there. And wow. you know, the police had basically beaten him up and he died. Wow. And then they tried to cover up the crime. In fact, they tried to steal the dead man's body from the hospital. Uh, and then, you know, after we sued, they sued us. You know, for suing them, it's long and complicated, but it's just. Can you can you sue someone because they sued you? Well, you could you could sue them for let let's say let's say someone sued you for no reason whatsoever, just sue you know, and just because they didn't like you, right? Well, you could sue them for malicious prosecution. That's what it's called, malicious prosecution. So we they sued us. And, you know, just to try to scare us off. And they were suing us in front of a judge who they knew would be on their side. And so we had to get stop that case from going forward so we could represent our clients. And, you know, it was a sad thing. Just, I mean, this was a family. They didn't have very much money, very almost no money. And, uh, you know, it just was incredibly sad. We ended up getting a, a great deal of money for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it was a rewarding thing, but I thought just the circumstances were terrible. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, how do you feel about the governor's signature legislation about education? Specifically, stop woke, don't say gay, and book bans. You know, <clears throat> I think that they're going after problems that are not real. I don't think there's a lot of discussion mm -hmm. in first grade about gender issues yeah. and so I think it's really just you know, kind of politically motivated I don't think it's really trying to address something and of course the unfortunate thing is it's it's interfering with the way teachers can do their jobs mm -hmm. right when you know you, you if, if it says so you can only do something that's age appropriate and if you go over a line some parent is going to sue you. Well, but the answer to that is, well, I'm going to be very careful and I'm not going to get close and I'm not going to address some issues at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really, you know, kind of quite, quite unfortunate. It, you know, it's, it, I think that we can trust teachers. I think we can trust students. I mean, people watch TV. They, they know about the real world and just trying to shield middle schoolers or high schools from difficult topics you know, it seems counterproductive to me. Yeah, are race relations better now than the earlier years of your career? They're different. They're different, I would say. You know, <clears throat> uh, with the uh, 
high-profile police killings, mm -hmm. I guess starting with you know the Trayvon Martin killing, I guess mm -hmm. it was 2015 in, in Florida, Sanford, Florida, and then of course the George Floyd uh, thing, or killing, which you know we all saw on television, right? We, we saw it. And so I think that uh, that prompted a lot of reforms that were necessary. On the other hand, I think that sometimes it's also fostered some resentment. I think some people, uh, some kind of some white people in particular, feel threatened by the advances uh, on civil rights. You know, there was a study done <clears throat> at Harvard, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, where, where what they showed was white people on average, not all, not all, but a, a large percentage of white people saw black gains as their losses. Mm -hmm. In other words, instead of everyone sharing in a bigger pie, sometimes people feel threatened when other people you know, make advances. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have a high degree of polarization now and polarized not just by political party but also by race that I think is uh, more stronger than it was 15, 20 years ago. So at the same time that we're making progress on racial issues, we also have a backlash to that very progress. So look, <clears throat> when you think about it historically, you know, I was born in 1954. Mm -hmm. I was born six months after the Supreme Court decided Brown v. Board. They were, I went to completely segregated elementary schools. The first time I had a black student is a, in, in one of my classes was in middle school. Wow. We called it junior high, they're probably seventh grade. So, I mean, now, so we've had tremendous progress in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, had, we've had a growth of a black middle class that really didn't exist 60 years ago. So we've made a lot of progress, but as it goes, we, we I think in many ways we haven't sometimes reckoned with the, uh, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's a lot of damage that we as a country have to continue to address. So you were alive during the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Kennedys, and other huge events. We're living through COVID. How do you think um, the big events like these affect uh, the way people are acting out? You know, I, I, my heart goes out to young people today who had to kind of live with COVID, you know, kind of a degree of isolation. I know that a lot of people have lost, especially in big cities, have lost a lot of school time. And you know, who knows whether they'll ever be able to catch up. So I think that's a very, very unique challenge that you know, kind of we have. Now when I was in Kennedy, when, when, Jack, when uh, President Kennedy was killed, I was just a little kid really. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming home and my parents were home. My parents were working people. The idea that my parents were home and um, I knew Kennedy had been shot but I didn't understand why they used the word assassination. What did that mean? Do you know? So, and of course, then I remember when Dr. King was killed, and you know there were uh, demonstrations, riots, rebellions, and uh, that was a scary time in some ways. Mm -hmm. I didn't personally feel threatened, but it's like the country going up in flames. Yeah. So I just think that living through those times molded me, 
you know, it's one of the reasons why I did what I did. Uh, but I just think the COVID thing is, at least to me, very unique. And, um, you know, I, I hope it's getting behind us. I, everybody get their boosters. Yes. <laughs> you know, please. Yeah. So speaking of assassination of assassinations, I recently studied the assassination of Malcolm X. And mm. I also recently researched the death of Dr. Martin Luther King due to recent tapes being released. Mm -hmm. Do you think James Earl Ray killed Dr. Martin Luther King? And who do you think killed Malcolm X and why? Well, let's start with Dr. King. I think the evidence that James Earl Ray killed Dr. King is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Overwhelming. And I think it's very sad that certain members of the King family don't believe that. Uh, were there other people were, some, were there other people involved in the killing? There are people who maybe helped him not pull the trigger, but maybe helped him with money, helped him get out of the country? Maybe. Maybe. But I don't think there's really any significant doubt about who pulled the, who pulled the trigger of the rifle that killed him. The Malcolm X thing is a little more complicated because, you know, uh, Malcolm X was... Uh, uh, had gotten crosswise with uh, Elijah Muhammad, who was, you know, running the Nation of Islam, and was, you know, as a result, faced a lot of death threats from within the Nation of Islam. Uh, there's no question that he was killed in the Audubon, you know, ballroom in the middle of a speech by, you know, people from the Nation of Islam. There's been some question about which ones, because there's so much confusion. Some people say that some of the people who went to jail really were not the perpetrators. I think it's not so clear. Uh, the you know the interesting question, or one of the questions that maybe we'll never answer, is did the government have some involvement, not in terms of plotting to assassinate someone, but maybe knowing something in advance about some plot and not acting? I don't think there's really a lot of evidence for that, but. You know, as conspiracy, you know, there will always be a conspiracy theory about these things. Mm -hmm. You know, just to two seconds worth. You know, at the time of the after the Kennedy assassination, most people believed the Warren report that Oswald killed Kennedy alone. Over time, as more conspiracy theories have you know come out, less people believe that. Yeah. Now, I think it's. I mean, I think there's no question but that Oswald killed Kennedy, and there's no question that he did it alone. To me, you know, and I've read a lot about it, but it's interesting how conspiracies get a hold of the public imagination. They're interesting, right? Yes. If, 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 if it's a conspiracy, you know something that other people don't. Oh, that's what yes. everybody's saying, but you, you have secret information. That, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a very, I, I think it's pretty clear what happened in those cases. Yeah, for sure. Are you optimistic about the future of our country and why or why not? Um... I'm worried. I'm worried. Um, <clears throat> I think that um, we're so polarized now. And when I see what's going on in Congress and in the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just, I'm, I wonder how do we get out of this? Some of the uh, questions that were asked to Judge Jackson during her confirmation hearing were ridiculous, and the people asking them knew it, yet they're trying to get a moment for TV that they think will influence their base. I think there are people in Congress right now 
who would rather see the country fall apart if that would give them an opportunity to take power. Mm -hmm. I think you know that. I think that's quite sad. Um, you know. So, and then I look at the Ukraine, right? And you see this this tremendous patriotism kind of by the Ukrainians. I mean, standing up and fighting against overwhelming force. And a poll was recently asked, would, if the United States was attacked, would you defend the country? And it was something like, just like half, you know, people would. Actually, the number for Democrats was even lower. Like 40% said they would fight. And so when, when there's not the same sense of social cohesion, the idea that we're all in this together, they're all pulling in the same direction. I don't see that right now. Uh, you know, democracy is, is a fragile thing. I think sometimes we say to ourselves, it's, it's, you know, kind of, it's, remember what Dr. King said, he says, the moral arc of the universe may be long, but it bends towards justice. And that's a great, that's an inspirational thing to say, but I'm not so sure it's true. It kind of depends on us, you know? It depends on us to take action to make that the case. One thing I always want to emphasize is I think most people, they learn history, they learn history, but they don't think of themselves as historic actors. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as like bystanders, just watching history go by. And we're not gonna be able to be a stronger country. We're not gonna be able to make the change that we need to make if we don't recognize that each and every one of us is a historic actor. So I think if we can infuse the next generation with those ideas and with that, uh, that impetus and not make them understand that, that we'll be better off. But I think the jury's out. You ever heard the term manifest destiny? Yes. Right, it has to do with the United States, you know, kind of covering, you know, all of the continental, you know, it's, yeah. it's our manifest destiny. Well, I think a lot of times Americans have this feeling that it's our manifest destiny to rule the world. It's our manifest destiny for to come out on top. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the way history works. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I, my, I, have, I have children. Sometimes I apologize to them for maybe leaving the country in as bad a shape as it is now. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I'm worried. Yeah. Um, I have a follow-up question, actually. What is your opinion on the way that American democracy works? Uh, well... You know, it's uh, it's clunky sometimes. Sometimes things move slowly, but you know, it's 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 served us reasonably well for what is it now, two hundred and thirty years. Uh, and so, I guess you know, something to be said for that. Uh, should there be reforms? Yeah, you know, right now, you know, a place uh, Montana has only one congressperson because the population is so small. California has like 50, but Montana has two senators just like California. And you might say, gosh, you know, we don't want to forget about the little states, but in terms of making policy for the country, maybe that's not such a good idea. So, you know, those are difficult things to reform because they would require constitutional amendments. 
I, I just I, I just hope that we can kind of get past this polarization that is tearing the country apart and, and, and interfering with our making progress. So I would definitely say all three of us have interest in law. What advice would you give to a young student interested in law? Well, first, I would study hard. I don't think it matters uh, what you study in college, particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I just think getting good grades and getting good you know, test scores, I mean, those are the kinds of things that would get you into, college, into law school. I guess the important thing is, you know, law school is three years and it's hard and it's long. So you don't want to go into it unless you're really committed to it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think that if you have an, an opportunity to get to know some lawyers, different kinds of stuff, uh, to make sure that it's really what you want to do. I think sometimes people have a vision of the law or lawyers that's just on television. Yeah. And you know, most law is not like that. I had an opportunity to do interesting things, to argue in the Supreme Court, to take, you know, have very, you know, fantastic jury trials. But, you know, and I think if that's, I think that's a great goal. But I just think you got to be realistic about it too. And and you know, you don't need to. You can major in anything in college, anything that you know you're interested in. But you just have to, you know, work hard. The one thing I would also say is <clears throat> one of the things that makes our country unique is the rule of law. The idea that you can go to court and actually sue the government. That's an amazing thing, you know, and say you're, you're violating my rights, so you're not living up to your responsibilities. And, you know, what makes our country great is a commitment to the ideals in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And we're always trying to live up to those ideals, right? When the Constitution was written, you know, black people couldn't vote, mm -hmm. women couldn't vote. And, you know, it's, and over time, we've, you know, we've, when we remember the first words of the Constitution, we the people, right? We the people. Well, we the people didn't include everyone in the beginning, right? It didn't. And so, you know, it's our country uh, needs to be committed in a very deep way to continue to uh, strive towards our ideals upon which we were founded. Sometimes people don't want to hear that. They would say, oh, you're just complaining. Everything is fine. But we all know that's not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have one final question. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh gosh, that's tough. That's tough. I guess I guess I'd like to uh, I'd like to say that during my time, I had an opportunity to work on issues that were important to me, and maybe leave the world in a little better place than it was when I found it. And I think it's the kind of thing that all of us should hope for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you so much for everything you have done to make our country better. Thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Tune in next week for another episode of Pensacola People's Podcast. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Pensacola People's Podcast out.